0: industry stacked up for 2023? Will the inflationary environment cripple the sector? Is supply chain back up and running or will we see shortages? What is trending and what will hit shelves? Battle Creek-based consultancy, JPG Resources, has its fingers on the pulse of the industry. From innovation to supply chain, consumer trends, investing and venture capital, Working with a wide variety of brands and industry leaders, the team is uniquely positioned to offer a different perspective from a different side of the business. We catch up with Managing Director, Glenn Pavelado, to get a deeper insight into what the future is. Glenn, thank you so much for joining me today firstly what in your opinion is a successful product
1: sure i think in food and beverage you know and probably really in some ways across any consumer product but uh, a successful product is something that addresses a true consumer need uh, in an effective manner Mm -hmm. and effective is is kind of the the critical term here so in food i think effective starts with Uh, you know, taste and flavor and the consumption experience. That's number one. If it's not enjoyable to consume it, in most cases, people will not continue to buy the product. Uh, But that's not all, right? You know, and so uh, beyond taste and and the consumption experience, there's nutrition, you know, we're building out. Um, And then that's first, you know, does it satiate me? But then does it make me feel better? And is it better for me in the long run? Um, And then there's aspects of uh, portability and convenience, right? So how hard is it to actually consume the thing? Right. Uh, and then as we radiate out even further, there's the notion of sustainability and and kind of, is this good for beyond me, right? So uh, is this good for uh, the world around me? And that could be the packaging. Is it recyclable? The way that the, uh, the products uh, and the ingredients, excuse me, are um, obtained um, including how humans are treated along the way, you know, so mm-hmm. uh, fair trade, and and, and basically, uh, how is the company that made this product, you know, run? Is that sustainable and something that the consumer you know, feels good about being associated with, even if nobody else sees, right? Just feels good to themselves, right? So, when you can tick off all those boxes, and not everybody does, um, that is kind of the ultimate measure of success. Now, plenty of products have been successful not hitting all of those boxes. But, you know, as long as you you, know, you start with taste and flavor, if you can deliver on that uh, and then at least one of the others, you've got a fighting right. chance.
0: Some say that the industry has a speed problem in getting product to market. Do you concur? Uh,
1: yes and no. It right. depends on who's making the product and mm-hmm. what the measure of success is. Um, getting a terrible product out to market quickly is never a good outcome. Uh, I've had that debate many times over my career. Right. Um, speed, you know, speed for speed's sake is not the goal. That said, there's a lot to be learned from accepting the notion that things are usually imperfect, and that historical methods of kind of data acquisition, we'll call it, from consumers and the world at large, are often limited and sometimes even inaccurate and, and often the best way to get the best data is to simply put the thing into practice and to allow people to show if they're willing to give you their hard earned dollars or their hard earned money um, in exchange for the product. And then if they're willing to do it again, right? So trial is one thing, repeats another. Um, and so I think that as time has gone on, m- many companies have realized that, you know, it used to be the whole, oh, startups, they, they move so fast. Well, they do and they don't. Right. The the good ones know when it's worth taking a beat or a pause, asking another question, taking another turn uh, versus rushing something out just because of a false, falsely imposed deadline. Um, that said, on the other side of the coin, larger companies, I think, are getting better around the idea that you can't fully de-risk or perfect a product in isolation or in theory or on paper or in a focus group. And so. You need to allow it to get out into the marketplace and give people the chance to interact with it in ways that are as close to, quote, normal behavior and both shopper and consumer behavior as possible. And the longer you wait to do that, you'll have greater and greater, you know, more hard to say this, uh, more diminishing or higher diminishing returns, if that's such a phrase, right. okay. you know, in, in that delay.
0: Please tell me about JPG Resources.
1: Sure. Uh, so JPG Resources is an innovation strategy and execution uh, consultancy. Although uh-huh. our founder doesn't doesn't love the word consultancy, but I make him use it. Um, you know, we were founded 14 years ago by Jeff Krog, who at the time was uh, the head of R&D Akashi during its kind of glory years or golden days. Um, and basically the premise or the, or the genesis was, as he looked externally for help on on innovation, namely product development, He had found he had one of two choices. He had super culinary, ultra creative, but not at all realistic or commercializable support from some parties. Uh, And then he had the other end, very tactical checklist driven arms and legs support. And he couldn't find anybody in the middle who could both execute, but think with the same business mindset and creativity that he could himself and wanted to see in a partner. So he started JPG to do that. Um, So our heritage is in product development. Um, and particularly in the early days, we were very focused on uh, startups and emerging brands in our industry. Over time, right. we have branched out to cover what we call the end to end of the process. So on the, uh, up the up the front end of the process is consumer competitive category facing work, um, even brand to a degree, making sure that that whatever the client is bringing to us to have created is the right thing to create uh, and focused on the right needs and the right uh Consumers and occasions, and then we've expanded kind of uh, down the chain, so to speak, into you know now that you have a a product and a formula, where are you going to make it? So most of the time, our clients need to find a contract manufacturer and get them set up, Uh, and then how are you going to get through uh, production and get the product moved around? So we will work with them through startup, uh, you know, initial production, and then perform supply chain management services for them for as long as makes sense um, on that product, which. Sometimes it's just a product line. Other times that's their whole business. And we'll we'll do that for them, you know, in some cases for years. Um, we do a few other things around the edges related to food and beverage, including M&A support, as well as um, early founder support in the form of coaching and, and workshops. But, you know, those three things, that end to end is really the ribbon or the thread that defines us.
0: Have we gotten over the challenges thrown up by COVID? And how has the pandemic impacted trains?
1: Uh, to answer the first question, no. <laughs> in part because the challenges, you know, many people say the challenges created by COVID. In some cases, that's true. In other cases, COVID just exacerbated or, or unveiled challenges in the industry that were already there. Um, you know, the infrastructure of the industry, for example, was already stressed prior to uh, to COVID happening, particularly logistics and trucking, for example, in the U.S. And you know, obviously, it just was a, a, a match to the fire or um, to, to let it burn even stronger. And then on top of that, it obviously complicated so many other things. Um, so if you think about various challenges that we've talked about during the pandemic um, on the consumer side, things like people not being able to be as mobile, not going back into the office, those obviously are alleviating to a certain degree, but we're left with a new challenge there, which is where do they land? You know, like, where do we end? You know, what is the new work model? Um, Mm -hmm. And and for people, for particularly snack brands, which are um, typically on the go, you know, a lot of the consumption of snacks is often portability. um, What does that mean? You know, where should I be emphasizing in terms of channels accounts and outlets uh, for sales and you know what should my, my messaging how do I think about my packaging formats, so I think we're still trying to collectively figure out what that looks like and we're probably a few years away from really knowing so there's going to be some some ups and downs there still, and if you think about the the other side the infrastructure side of the industry of actually getting products created into market. Um, there are still ingredient disruption all over the place and packaging material disruption all over the place, um, in part because that stuff takes a long time to correct for. It. And so you, know, you think about growth cycles for uh, certain commodities or building new capacity to process and create packaging materials. You know, those are not overnight processes, nor are they overnight decisions. Right. Those are multi-million, in some cases, billion dollar decisions that have to be made and so everyone's trying to read the tea leaves and figure out when do i go ahead and flip that switch and make that so i think in general in most spaces what we've seen is over the last year a lot of those decisions have been made and people mm-hmm. have started to invest in capacity so i i think there's hope on the horizon mm-hmm. um but in the meantime we've still got a little bit more pain to get through as things like the war in Ukraine and COVID and right. just the, uh, the, con- the still uncertain settling of labor and who is and who is not going to work in the same jobs anymore. Um, and then, you know, the other thing, we, the, 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 the pandemic did a nice job of, of uh, letting us forget was all the normal things that disrupt our lives, right? Uh, you know, right now in Michigan where I live, everyone's getting sick, but it's just normal sick. And you kind of forgot okay. that that still happens. Similarly, unions still go on strike. Right. Like and, and there, are, mm-hmm. you know, there are labor issues that are beyond just shortages of bodies. There's contractual. Um, and so even as we are seeing improvement in certain things like or we thought we were um, container shipping rates, um, even some trucking and rail, you know, as we we're starting to see some stabilization. Now we have those things to deal with um, right. and they're going to have their own, you know, say in the next six to 12 months and what's available and what you pay for it.
0: As you said, we're facing a a whole barrage of new challenges or continuation of challenges. How is industry actually coping at the moment?
1: You know, we've seen with our clients, obviously, there's been a huge switch from the decade of of 2010 to 2020 was, if you look back on it, a luxury, right? Like There was very little change in uh, price levels. For all of the major inputs to products for the most part Um, and availability was rarely an issue so everyone got to optimize like how do i get down to the absolute best supplier for this with the absolute best price just in time all that stuff that was great (laughs) that has not been the last two years and it continues to be the, the case where we are spending most of our time with clients thinking about how to stay nimble flexible have contingencies but in ways that don't absolutely destroy your profitability um, so we're trying to, you know, dance on on the, the head of a pin a little bit with everybody around how do I know that, you know, first and foremost, can I make enough at the levels of quality that my customers and consumers expect? Next, how do I do that in ways that do not bankrupt me? Uh, and three, where are my fallback, you know, provisions or approaches when inevitably, and it is inevitably right now, something doesn't go to plan? So the Uh whole mindset has shifted to trying to still be innovative and reliable in an era of constant uncertainty. Um, And I think people, it's it's a muscle. It's a behavior that's learned. And I think we're going to see some stronger companies over the next decade because of what's happened in the last two years, particularly at all levels, but particularly founders that get through this. You know, you think about launching something in early 2020 and you survive. Those two to three years, you're a pretty battle tested <laughs> founder at that right. point and mm-hmm. and kind of regular you know business as usual if we ever get to that. it probably won't seem nearly as challenging in some ways uh, you know as what you've already weathered
0: uh, regarding supply chain, can you tell us what you're seeing from ports to distributors and how manufacturers are responding?
1: Yes, so um, you know, like I alluded to earlier, we were uh, over the summer. At late summer and, and here into the early fall starting to see some outlooks in portions of the supply chain that you know, some version of stabilization was being was we were nearing mm-hmm. um and, and shipping in particular uh, and trucking here in the us at least i can't speak for around the world um and now with some of the labor issues on railroad and with the ports on the west coast um even if those are true you have a you know a, a new pain point uh, to deal with, and then obviously so much comes from China, and with their approach to COVID, there's still kind of you just don't know what you're going to get uh, any given week. Um, so I think from a dis- just a planal disruption perspective, it's slightly better.
0: Right. Okay. <laughs> slightly
1: better. I comma I think. Um, and and I I say that because not to underplay the importance of labor negotiations. But when you think about the history of labor, we've had plenty of those, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the things that we were trying to solve for the last two years, we had not necessarily seen before. And it feels like, you know, some of the the more once in a generation pandemic inspired conditions within the supply chain, we've more or less begun to find workarounds. So things like labor disruption via strikes, you know, painful and and troublesome uh, but understandable and you know, there's something that we do have a little bit more familiarity with Um, at the same time, availability uh, of products, like I alluded to earlier, I think that will start to get better. Um, You know, we've seen that with some of the uh, the availability of various ingredients and commodities um, recently. And we know that there's more capacity coming online in 23 in a lot of these areas um, Mm -hmm. that, that should help Even with the condition, for example, in the Ukraine, if that continues, um, there will be time, enough time will have elapsed to allow for alternative supply, either other sources of that same ingredient or substitute ingredients that can play the same role to uh, come online and and make the situation a little bit more tenable.
0: But in in the immediate term, though, are you expecting any shortages over the Thanksgiving and festive season?
1: yeah i think there will i mean well turkey right here in the us at least turkey's uh going to be an issue for some uh there was a, a, a bird flu which unfortunately uh has shorted the the yield on on turkeys here for this season so okay. i think there may be a number of american households who are eating very small turkeys that we normally would call a chicken uh, on thanksgiving um And or or maybe they're using it as an excuse to acknowledge that they really don't like turkey and they're going to they're (laughs) going to stop forcing themselves to eat it on Thanksgiving and they'll have something else they do like. Uh, I hope the turkey industry doesn't yell at me for saying that. Um, So for for sure, I mean, if you think about our industry, there are so many ingredients and inputs involved Mm -hmm. that it's nearly impossible. Even under normal times, you have pinches in some places. It's nearly impossible to think that. Um, we are not going to see, and particularly in, in, a, in a holiday season where there's a surge for certain kinds of ingredients and products, right, at that time of year. Um, the, to your point earlier about where we are on the supply chain, where we are not still is in a world where the supply chain can react quickly to spikes in demand. Um, right. You know, we're, most people are still struggling to to keep their head above water on kind of, quote, normal demand. So when there are surges, it is very difficult to kind of meet those
0: talking turkey is the plant-based movement still trending and if so um how is it evolving
1: it is i in the analogy i make is i feel like the uh the plant-based movement is, is about to enter its teenage years like right. it's kind of unruly. it's a, it's definitely there it's a growing entity it's going to be around but it's now a bit hard to, it doesn't know what it is it's it's kind of unruly um mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know in part because there have been so many entrants in the last four to five years and so much money behind it. Um, it creates a lot of um, we love to call things by single names, right? The plant based, right. movement. the plant based movement is if you break it down into the, the various players that make it up, is highly complex, you know, not only from a category perspective, but from the technolo- technological way that people are approaching the problem. And you have um, companies like Impossible and Beyond who are using very, you know, cutting edge uh, and technical approaches to replicate with non-animal, I'll call them, based ingredients, um, the true experience of eating animal protein. You have others which, you know, have been around in some cases for a long time, but there's also new entrants who are just saying, hey, we're not going to try and, we're going to use things that you can see. We're going to use lentils and vegetables and uh, uh, herbs and spices that are, that, clearly are not animal protein, to create Uh an experience that is enjoyable in its own way to replace the animal protein occasion. We're not going to make a facsimile. Um, And they have everything in between. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of disparity, one. And I think what that leads to is a lot of diversity in the messaging to consumers around what this does for you and why you should have it. Um, you know, there's obviously sustainability benefits on the one side uh, of eating plant-based products, but then there are other sustainability issues that those products themselves can create, um, and even nutrition benefits that, they, that are kind of, I'll call, uncertain at the time, um, depending on how you're making the product, right? Like, you know, is are some of these products clean? You know, what right. does that mean? Right. Um and and so you know we enter the the tangled web that is the notion of sustainability um mm-hmm. so i think there is still consumer interest and demand i think there will be consumer interest and demand in plant based but i think the implications for players in this space are one you got to get sharper on the messaging like what is your specific approach your specific product what benefits is it conveying in ways that are readily understandable and defensible you know if someone turns the pack around and looks mm-hmm. and and two, you got to taste good. Like there right. are, it's putting yeah. out a mediocre consumption experience and saying, Hey, it's plant-based line <laughs> on up and buy it is not going to work. I mean, I was at, um, the plant-based world, um, expo a year ago. so it was Plant. a year ago. So it's probably even gotten worse for my colleagues who went, it sounds like it has. And I think I counted at that 24, 25 different plant-based chicken nuggets. And I my. tried them all. Um, cause I have, uh, issues. Um, right. no, I wanted to see if I could do it. And in trying all of them, about half were not nothing was terrible, but about right. half were pretty mediocre. And at, at the end of the day, you know, think about the parent buying that for the family in, you know, a, a 60 or 90 nugget pack someday at Costco. And with a ring of $15 plus, maybe even 20, it, it, they get that home. It, it, if nobody really enjoys it, they're not going to buy it again. They just blew 20 bucks. So plant-based or not, it's still got to deliver. And, you know, I I saw that again at Expo East this year. We walked around and there are some that are getting it and they're doing a great job. And in general, I'd say the tide is rising, but there are many who are just diving in and kind of using that generic plant-based positioning and nothing else about what they're doing is at all remarkable. And frankly, they're the ones who will be weeded out in the next Mm -hmm. couple of years
0: keeping on the uh, t- uh, topic of ingredients uh, what do you see being the hottest tickets um in 2023
1: um a couple will go in a couple of different directions here so one um what i'll call alternative sweeteners i guess um, mm-hmm. you know, but allulose in particular um are still in in Unending <laughs> demand, it, it seems, for people wanting to get the experience of eating sugar without actually eating sugar, um, okay. and and I think that isn't going away, maybe ever. Um, you know, universally as humans, almost all of us have a sweet tooth. Um, but as we see in more and more research coming out, the consumption of kind of highly refined sugars is, is let's call it problematic, um, uh, particularly at high volumes, and so that just creates this unrelenting desire, right, for a way to shortcut <laughs> or, uh, you know, work your way around the system uh, that is our bodies. And so um, I, and I think historically, things like stevia and monk fruit have done a great job of giving people new choices, but they've had their limitations. They're not the easiest things to formulate with because of their intensity. Um, getting them in organic form is is highly challenging still uh and they have for some people at least physiological impacts in terms of things like aftertaste or you know the the tingling sensation that some get when they and so allulose appears to be the next Mm -hmm. level right the next evolution and and, and allulose isn't the only one there are others coming but that are able to do many of the same things that those can do but without some of the side effects that drive many people away now the question is when people first started using allulose and seeing its properties it was naturally occurring allulose like so many of these things what happens when we now scale it up um and we kind of uh cheat mother nature <laughs> and, and and cause it to to create itself on under our own terms you know will it will that process still be attractive to consumers um can we do it in a way that meets their desires for things like cleanliness and will the physiological experience and impacts you know, over time Still be the same as the naturally occurring. Yeah. I think that latter one probably will be the the former in terms of cleanliness and and processes that people can feel good about is is the one that that industry just needs to be careful about. You know what okay. what inputs are they using to create it. So that's one. Um, the second are regenerative uh, ingredients, and so these can be either um, existing you know more con- I'll call it conventional species of. Um, crops that are grown in regenerative ways or return to crops that in and of them, themselves as a species are more regenerative, like perennial, right? Um, okay. and, and therefore, you know, and there's a lot of range within the world of wheat, for example, to, to to explore that. Um, the I think where that industry had, or that movement had struggled for the last few years was finding a shorthand way for people to understand the ultimate benefit to themselves in ways that were, Truly compelling from a shopper perspective, everybody will tell you in conversation at a cocktail party, that they want the world to be a better place and they will, you know, it's great that products are coming out that improve the climate or whatever the long-term benefit is, but then you follow them into a store when they're hungry and what do they buy? Um, Mm -hmm. And it's not always the same thing. Uh, So we are at heart, particularly as shoppers, selfish entities, and we're going to buy things that we think will benefit us in the near term first. Um, and so I think for regenerative movement, where they may be cracking the code is the story of nutrient density, which is something that everyone can get their heads around. Like, if I eat you know, ounce for ounce, pound for pound,
0: right. this
1: regenerative version versus the non, I'm going to get more stuff. I'm going to get more fuel for my right. body. And, uh, you know, and, and again, provided that the consumption experience itself isn't uh, adversely affected, which, again, I think we're getting better at knowing how to use different ingredients, uh, to produce similar imp- uh, effects in products. Uh, so I don't think that'll be a big issue. And then as a consumer, why wouldn't I, you know, like, why wouldn't I want more nutrition out of the same food? Um, so I think that watching that unfurl over the next couple of years is going to be very interesting.
0: So is health still a very big trend?
1: Yes. In part, cause it's such a massive idea, right? And it has so right. many manifestations. Um, humans are fascinated by the notion of their health, right? It's just a matter of how they're defining it. Um, And is it my strength? Is it my weight? Is it my sleep? Is it my mental well-being? You know, the last few years in particular have really shined the light on that side of health, right? Mental health and even the role of sleep. Um, You know, I think going into the pandemic, we were just starting to tap into the microbiome and the gut and how much we don't know there and how much we think it, it drives things. And that's still very much true. So in part, there's still so much to learn that I I can't see it. And I think people realize foods, (laughs) it's the one food and beverage is the one product out there in the world of consumer products that you ingest. Right. You you know, other than other than, I guess, perhaps supplements, but that you Mm -hmm. actually take into your body. So it is so closely tied to the notion of your health and how you feel. Um, They're inextricably linked. And I don't know that that movement would has you know any reason to slow down ever
0: in this inflationary environment do you think sustainability has taken a bit of a back burner
1: yeah it's been a hard few years for the notion of sustainability i think first during the mm. pandemic people were just you know shell-shocked and trying to get by and so there was a return to just what do i need to feel better right now right um we saw a lot of people move back to comfort brands and comfort eating um, at the beginning of the pandemic and and then all the and I hate to say this word because it, it, it's it, I can't think of a better term but the inconvenience of the pandemic in in ways of changing and limiting our lifestyles and I don't mm-hmm. by any means mean to uh, take lightly the, the truly um, terrible impacts of the pandemic but you know from a consumer perspective um, there was a lot of restriction um, for us and so I think that again may put people in a position of, well, you know, like it, I'm going to prioritize other things right now. And now we're almost three years into things. And just as people were maybe reaching a place where their freedom of movement and lifestyles were getting back to a place where they could put more emphasis on sustainability uh, and their mental well-being perhaps is getting back to a place. We now have inflation. And on top of that, we mm-hmm. even have things like uh, the Greenpeace report on recycling recently, right, that says like, hey, actually isn't happening. And that for for consumers who, you know, were very much behind those types of things, that's in a way heartbreaking because you're like, uh, we were told, you know, effectively, if mm. you do these things, it will have this benefit. And so for years, you know, recycling is probably one of the most widely adopted sustainable behaviors of all consumers. And now you find out that, was it even doing anything? Is it even doing anything? And and on something I'm, I'm being a little bit traumatic, it, it definitely has a benefit and certain portions of recycling still work fine, but we learned that a large chunk of it wasn't. So I think we're all left with a little bit of like, what do we do? Like what is what is our role in sustainability? How do we actually help? And how do we know that we're really helping? So I think it's um it's a bit of a crossroads for the notion of sustainability for the industry. Um between all of us being honest around what will it truly take to make an impact and mm-hmm. how do we get people there, given all the other things they're trying to balance as as shoppers and consumers,
0: Can you talk about food waste?
1: Yeah, food waste is a, it's a passion point for me, as my wife will tell you, mm-hmm. um, in our house. I still think it's the most readily solvable yes. is, major issue in our industry today. Uh, If you think about what it takes to actually solve it, like we know how to solve it. What we have to work through are largely self-imposed conditions here in the U.S. that a lot has things to do with litigation and legality um, and food safety. And nobody wants to make anybody sick for sure. But um, we have moved the needle perhaps so far in one direction at the expense of throwing away so much yes. uh, usable product and food while people are starving. Um, and then there's the other part of food waste that's not even measured, which is overconsumption. Um, you know, And we lead the world basically in the notion of overconsumption. Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of unfortunately what we've done. And, um, and, and it's across our lifestyles, not just food, but food is where it's perhaps most acute. Yeah. Um, are things isn't all you eat? Can eat buffet? Is 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 that food waste? Is someone oh eating it, mm-hmm. stuffing themselves with a third plate? Food waste? I, I you could argue it is. You know, like there's no real positive benefit to <laughs> to, to those kinds of environments, and yet we proliferate them. So uh, I think food waste. There, the solutions are there. Is the appetite, no pun intended, there to work and use them. To create a you know do people see this as important enough mm-hmm. um and i think it what it ends up coming down to is can we draw a line between solving food waste and all of the other benefits it can have so that people start to understand why it is a priority uh and and perhaps if you line it up against some of the other things that we're prioritizing it's more in the near term for arguably more solvable um so i i think that enough people are starting to talk about it more and in the right ways that the conversation is moving in the direction it needs to in terms of people being able to make those connections if i'm being honest it's going to come down to people seeing dollars and cents behind it because for better or for worse that's often what drives the adoption of movements and and then gaining scale so if Mm -hmm. people can start to see that side and those benefits um then you know you'll start to see real pressure on on change
0: Turning our attention to the industry, what big M&A movements have you seen recently and what are you expecting in the new year?
1: Yeah, I think what surprised me going into the pandemic, as the pandemic hit, I thought, oh no, what is this going to mean for emerging uh, uh, brands and startups in terms of their ability to get funding? And I was pleasantly surprised at how strong that aspect of the industry remained and in part because we had government funding packages that went out and made their way into the, the world the ecosystem which helped with that but i think now we are starting to see with those you know in the rear view mirror and the inflationary aspects we're running into um and and the corresponding rise in things like interest rates it's becoming a bit more challenge environment uh, and in some ways not the worst thing because you know multiples particularly for branded food and beverage startups, were at places that were really challenging to sustain, um, particularly for the, the larger um, strategics who end up being the, the ultimate acquirers, right, of these things. Um, so what I think that means for the year to come is, and we've already seen this happening, is more attention um, from a lot of the, the money out there, particularly the private equity and kind of we call the um, financial investors of the world, not the large comp- branded companies like the General Mills or Mondalees. Um A lot of that money has been focusing on the infrastructure side of food and beverage. Right. So contract okay. manufacturers and flavor houses and ingredient suppliers. And in part, I think there's twofold. They recognize that there was a lot of opportunity to consolidate and optimize within those pockets of the industry. There's a lot of demand for the services or, or um, outputs of those parts of the industry and the multiples for those companies were not nearly as stretched as they were for the branded startups. And I think that will continue for the next couple of years, although more and more people get into the pool, obviously those conditions change and things like multiples start to get more complicated. And then on the um, the big uh, strategic right, the, the corporate side of things, I think we will see a little bit more divestiture next year. um we've obviously started to see some of that this year there's always some of it right but i guess that the balance of um acquisition to divestiture i think it'll skew a little bit more towards divestiture than than it has the past few years in part because the external conditions are forcing some of the larger companies to think about what do they really want to try and get through this period with and what just doesn't make sense anymore um and in some cases, it's you know not even divestiture. You like, look at the Kellogg company, right? It's complete restructuring uh, of the company, um, which in a way is a massive, large-scale divestiture of a sort. Right. Um, so uh, I think that, for, for for me, I think those will be a couple of the trends that we see over the next 12 months.
0: Some say the industry is only just on the cusp of the digital age. Do you concur? Uh,
1: I think that's a fair statement, only if, to say that we as humans are only on the cusp of the digital age right it, <laughs> it moves so quickly and there's so much that we don't know yet and and that will be will, will come is to come um that's really hard for anyone to be on top of it but yeah yeah i think it's fair to say that c- compared to some other industries food and beverage is a little usually a little bit behind the times when it comes okay. to things like digital and e-commerce um and and in part you know you think about why is that we have a degrading product right like Food safety and just deterioration shelf life of the product in our industry makes it harder to to rapidly adopt some of these new models versus consumer products or or technology, which you know often doesn't include anything physical at all um so it's it's easier to kind of take these risks and try these new models, so we're always going to be a little bit of a laggard um, that said, I think that the last few years in particular we've seen. Smaller companies have are always the vanguard, right? They're always going to try the new things first. And so mm-hmm. that's where a lot of learning comes, and it's been no different on digital. But larger companies are getting faster at learning about these things. And what's interesting to me is the fragmentation of the service provider portion of the industry, right? So um, uh, we've seen it years ago. The call were the first really um, – example of this right i didn't need to have my own plant anymore to be successful uh and that was 15 years ago and now i can start a food company by myself and have no employees or i can outsource everything basically everything's fragmentable and i can get access to high quality expertise in these fragmented ways i mean i guess this is in a in part kind of what jpg does as well but from a digital perspective what that means is the ability to execute at a high level on digital there's really no excuse not to I mean it's it's accessible the tools themselves have become quite affordable and user-friendly the people who know and are good good at this have become more accessible user-friendly affordable um and, and so I think as that happens it just raises the level for everybody and it creates more incentive for you know new discovery new tactics. It also makes it harder on on the other side of the coin, it makes it harder to stand out and be like significantly better than your peers at it. Um, which, you know, five years ago, some people were, but if you're talking about the, the aggregate movement of of the industry in that space, I think it's a net positive and, you know, back to your original question, all that said, because we're a laggard as an industry and because digital in general moves so quickly, <clears throat> right. we, yeah, we are still at the early stages of meaning, because the, the biggest gap still probably is tying digital into the physical infrastructure of the company, uh, including the operational side. There's still a lot more that could probably be done there that hasn't been. And as you think about AI and you think about things like mm-hmm. robotics, like there there's so much more that could happen there, whether we want it to or not. There's another debate, but so much more that could happen there that that is going to take probably a decade or more to really see take root.
0: In your opinion, what do you see the next big snack hitting the shelves?
1: That's a tricky one. Um, You know what? I I'll give one answer. Um, I think that the technology is out there now to take whole ingredients, whole produce, like think about like vegetables, mushrooms, or or even fruits. and I won't, i'll i'll say freeze drying but it's not just there there are other versions now of what we historically would have called freeze drying that allow us to create turn those into crispy salty snacks or in the case of fruit sometimes sweet snacks mm-hmm. that are just the thing right like they they right. they make the the ask the experience of eating a mushroom or a strawberry an entirely unique and different thing than what we've been used to okay and i think that there's the potential there to kind of redefine the notion of um, hand-to-mouth snacking through things that are you know ultimately incredibly simple but also incredibly clean and of course then the question comes: how do you modify like what do you put in with there with them what do you season with that like elevates us to an even you know greater level but it's just pretty incredible what we can do with the original thing that we've been familiar with for centuries uh-huh. um, through some of these technologies now and and that and what's great about these technologies is they don't necessarily degrade the food in in the process um so you know you still get vast majority of the flavor and the nutrition so i i find that very exciting um because you know some of the the greatest food experiences i've ever had i think any of us ever had are also often some of the simplest um and so the ability to to bring a little bit of that back into the world of snacking is exciting right it's the ultimate ultimate transparency